So this time I would like you to join me in welcoming Dr. St. Agony to the front of the room. and to talk a little bit about my dissertation research, which was focused on traumatic brain injury from domestic violence, but really I'm kind of positioning that in more of a global picture. So this is the brief description. Sometimes I have this slide up in the beginning. Welcome, folks. Come on in. There's still some seats up here. Um, we can pull these seats out off to the side. Um, so hopefully you read this or saw this somewhere, but this is just an overall description of the presentation. And for people who are watching this, um, you can read this and kind of know where the presentation will be taking you. Um, I want to start just by acknowledging, first of all, the women who participated in my study. I feel like a lot of times in research, our participants don't get enough credit for showing up. So these women shared their life stories, which was meant a lot to me and meant that I could finish my dissertation. Um, I also will be presenting work from my dissertation, which includes secondary data analysis from an R01 study. So the number is down there, and I am here today as part of a grant at T32 Training Fellowship. So as we're all kind of getting settled, I always like to start by just taking a second to pause and really acknowledging that what I'm about to talk about is pretty heavy stuff. And so everyone in the room has permission to step out, use the restroom, of course, keep eating your food. Um, if I ask questions and you don't want to participate, that's okay. Um, and this is really a safe space to talk about this stuff. So one of the main problems with this particular area is the language. Traumatic brain injury, head injury, <coughs> post-concussive syndrome, domestic violence, intimate partner violence. Don't let language trip you up. If you have a question or if you want to talk about it, don't worry about having the correct words. But please act with respect for yourself and others when we are doing some interactions. Why did this go away? Um, maybe it just fell out. Um, well, I can tell you that the bottom part of the slide says, um, and really, the work that I'm doing is part of this larger cultural acknowledgement that's happening. I mean, this is a small part of the Me Too movement, but we all have to recognize that it's very likely that a lot of people in this room have experienced violence, that we love people who have experienced violence, and another important thing that we're all having to learn is that we probably love people who have perpetrated. So this, is, this can be a lot to just kind of sit with, but it's important as we move forward to think about these things. Um, so my next slide talks about what I operate from, which is this radical idea that violence is a health issue. And we are, most of us, healthcare providers. This is not radical to us. We take care of people experiencing violence. Did this thing just turn off? So we take care of people who are experiencing violence, and so for us, we know that there are health outcomes that um, are impacted by violence. But when I go to traumatic brain injury conferences and present there, it's like nobody's even really ready to start talking about violence. I have no idea. <laughs> hmm. Well, I'll just keep plowing forward a little bit, because you don't need to see any of my slides yet. So, oh, maybe? Oh, yay. Yay, okay. I'll try not to touch any of that. <laughs> I don't know. So just a quick question. How do we as healthcare systems, not individual people, but systems, how do we address violence? What do we do? Anybody? 
How do you engage with people experiencing violence? You take care of them when they're hurt, right? Try to have preventative mechanisms. <clears throat> yeah, preventative mechanisms. What's our main way that we as a healthcare system? Ta-da! Um, but really, screening is not an adequate response to violence, right? So we're not adequately prepared to respond to this violence. So what are some problems to responding through violence through screening? Maybe the person who abused the person is right nearby. They're within earshot. We all know those curtains are paper thin. Um, are we comfortable asking the questions? Did we get any training on how to ask these questions to people? Another thing that I hear is it's not my problem. And it's not that, when people say that, it's not that they don't care, but if you have a 20 minute clinic window and you're already assessing ABC, you don't have time to go through the whole gamut. So it gets pushed off. It's seen as something that maybe a social worker should do or maybe a therapist should be addressing. The other thing that we don't like to talk about is screening for violence can introduce the risk of losing children. Because we know that in New Hampshire, everyone is a mandatory reporter, but as a nurse when I was doing my dissertation research, I would start every interview by saying, I am a mandatory reporter of child abuse. And so people know that, and that is a problem. I'm not saying that I, this is a whole different topic, I'm not saying that I don't think we should report child abuse, but it's not something that we think about when we're doing screening. If you're doing patient intake, you're like, blah, 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 do you feel safe at home? And if they say no, what system does that put into place? And the last thing, time, right? How different would primary care appointments look if you had 10 minutes to address your own social determinants of health before you even got to the reason that you were there that day. So are there any other challenges or barriers that you face in your own clinical practice when you're screening people? Any that I'm missing? I always ask this question because I don't work everywhere. Yeah? I just think we don't do a good job of screening, period. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's absent, really. In our clinic, we, you know, in the beginning, we did a really good job because we incorporated into um, surveys that were electronic, and now we don't use that survey anymore. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure the providers, I don't know what goes on in the room with them, and, mm -hmm. you know, it's just too mishappened. Yeah. You know, it really is. I'm not, and I don't know what other clinics do, and yeah. I think it would be great to get the providers on board and learn how to screen properly and honestly, like you said, time is of the essence. Mm -hmm. Who has time to talk about why did you come in with that facial fracture? Right. You know, are you safe at home? Yeah. You know? This is great. You you hit on some things that I'll kind of wrap up with. So keep thinking about that. So if we're not really prepared as a health system to respond to violence, we should be able to respond to the health consequences of violence. And these are some of the things that I talk about a lot. TBI, chronic pain, things like unintended pregnancy and sexually transmitted infections, opioid use, things like mental health consequences, PTSD, suicide attempts, and then little other things that might sometimes just fly under the radar a little bit. Are you tired all the time? Do you have problems sleeping? Do you sleep too much? Are you sad? Do you have a lack of hope? Those are things that are also associated with a lot of these health things like TBI and PTSD. So I'm not going to spend very much time on this slide. I'm assuming that this is this domestic violence grand rounds. I don't need to define it. But these are some of those other murky languages. So battered woman, which is personally a term that I hate, but lots of people still use it. Um, spousal abuse, intimate partner violence, interpersonal violence. It's all violence. It all involves two people, sometimes more. But I did just want to kind of put us, put us on the same page for defining traumatic brain injury. 
So it's basically if you have trauma to your head and then you have symptoms from traumatic brain injury. And this last line, observed or self-reported loss of consciousness, that's how I define traumatic brain injury for my dissertation. So I didn't check for a clinical diagnosis because we know for clinically, we diagnose TBI with the GCS, right? But how many people actually get a GCS in the community? Nobody. Nobody says, oh, well, my pupils were dilated. Um, because if they were, they probably aren't talking to you. So we tried this earlier, and I hope that this works. This is a video from a team in Canada. Battered and brain injured. Identifying and supporting brain injured women survivors of intimate partner violence. Picture four women that you know and love. Their faces in your mind. Your mother, your sister, your daughter, your oldest friend. Now choose one of those four and know that she will experience intimate partner violence. Every year, thousands of Canadian women are beaten by their intimate partners. Violence which can cause a permanent concussive traumatic brain injury or TBI. The most common forms of physical violence are hits to the head, face and neck, including strangulation, causing brain injury to the part of the brain that allows you to organize tasks, successfully develop and execute a plan, remember important dates and events, control your emotions and recognize emotions on someone else's face. And just like sports related concussions, the more you get, the worse the damage gets. We wanted to understand how much IPV service providers knew about traumatic brain injury and identify ways to improve the health and well-being of women survivors. We invited 68 organizations across the greater Toronto area who self-identified as offering support services to women survivors of IPV to answer our survey. We discovered a widespread lack of knowledge. Consistent research suggests as many as 80% of women survivors of intimate partner violence may have traumatic brain injury. Previous research indicates that blows to the head, face and neck, concussion and loss of consciousness were serious indicators of potential TBI, but often these experiences aren't being actively inquired about. The great news is that 88% of organisations said it is possible for their agency to adapt tried services to make it easier for women with TBI to benefit and are willing to seek training about identifying and supporting TBI. So in phase two, we held the first Canadian gathering of stakeholders at a one-day workshop in Toronto to start the education process and build alliances. Women survivors, frontline workers, researchers, representatives from the TBI sector and disabled women's advocacy groups, everyone at the table contributed to the conversation. Three overwhelming messages emerged from the workshop. Education is critical and needs to happen on multiple levels simultaneously to raise awareness about the risks of TBI. Secondly, research is a top priority. We need to expand our understanding of this complex intersection. Thirdly, next steps need to take place to move us towards our goal of improving the health and well-being of brain-injured women survivors of IPV. It is also important to listen to women survivors themselves. Sometimes it is easier to focus on their bruises than it is to see their strengths. But these comments from survivors at the workshop show how we can make a difference. These women shared their stories, their pain, and their laughter with us, and left us with a message of hope and a challenge to continue. These are their words. I think if other women can just have a chance to participate in this kind of training, to be here really is for me a privilege. Because as a survivor, and having those with different experiences with others, I just feel myself that 
really, there is something changing in my life. With all the abuse I went through, I never thought I might have traumatic brain injury. But coming to the conference today and listening to all the information, I'm sure that at some point in my life I did experience it. This research project about brain injury, this is an eye-opener for all of us because it taught us how important it is to know the value of mental health, which might be compromised because of intimate partner abuse. The research team would like to thank all the participants who shared their knowledge and expertise with us so we could begin to understand the intersection of traumatic brain injury and intimate partner violence. So Canada's really cool. They're doing a lot of really interesting stuff. And I actually met some of those researchers at a conference that I was at recently, and we're talking about how we can maybe bring their model of surveying everyone to the United States. But I kept that in there partially because the woman's voice is very pretty, and it's a nice break from my voice. Um, but a lot of the things that they said are true for the US as well. The statistics are all the same. The quotes from the women that they included in that video, I heard women say the same thing when I talked to them. So I'm going to give you just a little bit more information about this topic in the United States. So the CDC estimates that 38 million women in the U.S. have experienced some type of physical intimate partner violence in their lifetime. And the statistic that you hear a lot is one in four women and one in seven men. And we know that women who are living with domestic violence are seven times more likely than women who aren't living with domestic violence to receive a head injury loss of consciousness. And this is actually from a literature review that I did. 60 to 90% of women probably receive some type of facial or head injuries during the abuse. So using this estimation, there could be 23 million women in the United States living with a traumatic brain injury from intimate partner violence. And one amazing statistic that I learned from the Canadian team, this is how they present it. They say, we know that one in four women experience some type of domestic violence. And we'll just be conservative, and we'll take 50%. We'll say that 50% of those women have a traumatic brain injury. That means that one in eight women in the U.S. are living with a TBI from IPV. Who else knows what one in eight, what's another one in eight statistic? Breast cancer. Yes, so good. So think about, if you Google breast cancer, these are some of the things that you get. Good statistics, pictures of trees, beautiful branding campaigns, raising awareness, entire pamphlets, um, all different kinds of questions, answers, how can you detect it, research goals. If you Google brain injury, domestic violence, you get some kind of boring white papers. You get awful things like sexual abuse by a medical professional. Um, there is a group called Pink Concussions, and they do specifically women in head injury. They have a focus on TBI from violence. And then there's a woman at the Huffington Post named Melissa Jeltsin, and this is one of the first articles that came out, and it's really good. And if you have a chance later, you should read it. It's from 2015. This quote is from Kimberly Crenshaw, and she says, if we can't see a problem, we can't fix a problem. So if we are not thinking about this one in eight, how are we ever going to start to address it? So currently, these are the numbers that the CDC gives for TBI by sex. But the screening tools that we have are kind of like a hammer. They're really good. They were tested usually on males with a one-time event model of trauma. So athletes, car accidents. And really what we're talking about with women who experience multiple forms of violence across the lifetime, it's more of like a screw. So what I try to posit is that we need to start coming up with different types of screening tools because we might not even be picking up symptoms. Think about the difference between heart attack presentation in men and women and how revolutionary that was. 
So here are some things that we do know. Sorry for all the words, but I left these on here for people who are watching at home, so you don't have to listen to me talk all the time. But there are lots of overlapping health consequences and outcomes. Anxiety, depression, GI distress, stroke, STDs, heart disease. And this is interesting. In the study with women after mild TBI, they're much more likely to have epilepsy and attempt suicide than men. And then these two quotes are from some women doing work in the VA. So they looked at veterans specifically, and their higher depression and PTSD scores with TBI from DV than just physical abuse. So they did get a diagnosis of TBI. So getting a diagnosis of TBI <coughs> meant that your PTSD was worse than if you were just hit in the head. And there are things like higher sexual abuse, um, which is something that I found in my dissertation, which I will talk about. And then this last one is really important. This is a simple takeaway that we can all start doing when we work with women experiencing violence. Safety planning is a big thing when you're talking about domestic violence screening. And if you talk to women about spending less time in rooms where they might get hit in the head. So I would ask questions in my dissertation. Do you avoid any rooms? And some women would say, I do not go in the basement because there are too many things in there that can be used as a weapon. So that's just something, as we were talking about safety plans, or making plans for women to go home or go back to their communities or spend time somewhere, just kind of start thinking about how can we modify these safety plans. So now I'm going to switch and talk to you about my specific dissertation research. Um, I did not take this photo, but it is in Capitol Reef, Utah, which is one of my favorite places. Um, so this was the question that I asked for my dissertation. How does receiving a TBI during domestic violence impact the lives of women? I did qualitative research, which means I looked at interviews. I had some that I did, and I looked at 20-something um, interviews from nine women as part of this bigger study that my advisor did before that. And that one was important because they followed women for two years, and they were home-visiting nurses. So these nurses interviewed the same women over a two-year time period. So a lot of the context of abuse came from reading those interviews. And then I asked specifically follow-up questions around things like, what's it like for you to go to the shelter with the TBI? Um, what was hard for you about going to the shelter? What was hard for you about getting medical care? What made it easier for you to get medical care? Um, and like I said, there was no TBI diagnosis, but they all did say they passed out from being hit in the head. And that was the language that I used. So this is just a quick little infographic of what types of relationships these were in. Again, this is where the language gets messy. So some women were in dating relationships. They met him at a club. They met him online dating. Some of them were living together, and they did not get medical care. And most of those women in the middle bracket, most of those were from the study, the secondary analysis study. And then there were three women that I recruited from a women's shelter, so I was able to talk to them about what made it easier for them to go to the shelter. So the first thing that I'm really going to talk to you about is this concept of instability and power. So the context of these women's lives, these women that I talked to and that were from the original study, they all were living very unstable lives. So I define this as really thinking about things like incarceration. They were incarcerated. Their family was incarcerated. Their parents, their children. A lot of them grew up in and out of foster care. A lot of the abusers, and they all had to be men for the purposes of my dissertation, um, they came in during a period of extreme vulnerability. So they were in foster care when they were emancipated from foster care. One woman met her abuser at her first husband's funeral. So these are kind of abuser characteristics that I'll talk more about later. Things like alcohol and drug use, a history of family violence, 
repeating cycles of abuse throughout the lifetime. So a lot of women had been in multiple abusive relationships and maybe had reached a point where they said, you know what, I'm done. I'm not dating anymore. I'm not interested in men. I just want to focus on myself. This is one of the intense findings that I was not expecting. Um, for, I didn't ask women this question in my study, but from reading the interviews of, that were already collected, hitting a woman in the head was a way to force her to have sex. And really what that meant was it was a violation of her most sacred space. That's how women talked about this. And what this means is that hitting her in the head is about power and control. So take a breath. That's like, this is what I would have to do as I was doing my analysis too. So you read these things. I think about these things. I talk to these women. I take a breath and I say, okay. So really, what does this mean? So if this is about power control. What this means is that for these women, it can be dangerous to get medical care. And not in the way that we think about dangerous, what happens when you get to the hospital. Even the process of getting to the hospital for these women can be dangerous. Because if she's getting hit in the head, that is his last attempt to control her, everything about her. And there was really a lot of even, I control whether you live or whether you die. Um, so for one of my manuscripts that I submitted to the Journal of Forensic Nursing, which is coming out in December, I'm talking about a lot of these things. And they said, how about you make a theoretical depiction of this? So I said, okay. So in the center, we have the woman, the head injury, the forced sex, and then this is kind of the things that are spiraling around her. Historical control, that's really talking about incarceration, foster care, police involvement. Most of these women were underemployed. So they did not have things like health insurance, even though I didn't specifically ask that question. Um, a lot of them might have been on Medicare or Medicaid, but um, I didn't ask. So they're experiencing control from the abuser, substance use, incarceration. So there's this whole spiral, and they actually have to navigate a dangerous pathway to get medical care. And I'm not just talking about some of the research that's out there that's right after a woman leaves an abuser is the most likely time that she will be killed. I'm not talking about that. She wasn't trying to leave him. She was just trying to get medical care. So that was kind of the first half of what I really thought about. And then I was thinking, well, how does this affect the rest of their lives? This, is, this photo is actually a double rainbow. It doesn't really show up. Take it on my iPhone. So this is what women would say when I asked questions about specifically their head injury. I didn't necessarily use TBI because I didn't want to freak them out. I wasn't trying to give them a diagnosis. But they would all describe symptoms of TBI. One woman described them as hammer headaches. She's like, I get it in the same spot, and it's just penetrating, excruciating pain. Problems with memory, organization, increased anxiety and depression. Every time they would get hit in the head again, these things would get worse. Um, trouble with employment. A lot of them felt that happiness was unattainable, and this was a really hard piece of the interviews for me, because I would talk to these women for almost an hour, and some of them would be, we would both be crying by the end, because they just felt like they were never going to be happy, which I can't tell them that they're going to be happy, but I can tell you that a lack of hope is a side effect of a TBI, so what do we know about how we can address some of that stuff? And a lot of them had a TBI in adolescence, whether it was from some sports, some car accident, a lot of people fell down biking, they weren't wearing helmets in the 80s, apparently. Um, so that kind of got me thinking, is there a repeating nature to TBI? If you get one, are you more likely to get another, and another, and another, and another, and what's happening? How can we kind of break that cycle? So from the violence side, these abusers were described as very dangerous men. I already mentioned that they kind of preyed 
on very vulnerable women, but they were um, kind of what I called the worst of the worst. These women were all working really hard to keep their families together. They wanted to keep their kids. Even if these men were awful, some of the women wanted their children to have a father. And she would say, he never hurt my children, so I really want my children to grow up with a father. Um, they were working really hard to do things like provide their children with food and shelter, and they were trying to manage these complex systems that would maybe try to take away some of their autonomy, right? So this goes back to what happens when you scream yes to violence. The other thing that these women talked about was living in fear. So I said they all experienced repeating cycles of abuse, so they were afraid of men, they were afraid of their neighbors, they were afraid of hitting their head again which led them to prioritize their own safety and the safety of their families. And they would do this by, I called it, invoking isolation as protection. And what this means is that it takes one person to tell that horrible man that you just left where you are. And so they would stop going to church. They would stop talking to their friends. They would stop going out. Some of them even cut off their families because they really wanted to keep themselves and their children safe. They were calculating their risk of death. And this was kind of a surreal moment because women knew that if they got hit in the head again, they would die. And so this was the woman who said, I never go in the basement. I stay out of the kitchen if he is home because the doctors keep telling me if I get hit in the head again, I could die. She's like, how do I keep him from hitting me in the head? Um, and this last thing, maintaining a present orientation. I recently learned that part of a partial PTSD diagnosis is foreshortened future, and it's the same thing. It's kind of like if your life is so chaotic, how can you even look beyond the next day? But if we think back to symptoms of TBI, and like they were saying in the video, problems with some of that executive functioning. So is it PTSD? Is it a TBI? Is it just that your life has 50 things that you have to do today? I don't really know, and I wasn't trying to figure it out. I was just trying to describe and explain what I saw. So back to this living in fear and what all is going on here. I heard women talk about being afraid of getting medical treatment, and not from the, maybe the abusers in the next room. This woman was 20. They told me I needed to go to the doctors right away, but I never went because they might tell me something I don't want to hear because I know there's something wrong with me. I know I'm not normal after that. This woman was afraid she was losing her hearing at the age of 20, and she didn't want to know about it. She was too afraid to go. And so I did a little, you know, what's kind of better to go, maybe there's some things that you can do, but she was just like, no, I just, I don't want to know. I've got enough going on. I don't want to hear what's permanently wrong with me after this. So this is um, my dog in the fields in North Heartland, who's constantly trying to figure out what all is going on here. And so, there were a few things as I was doing my analysis that I felt like I was really missing. So what do we know about the abusers? Because in the violence research world, it's not actually that popular to talk about the abusers. It's really specifically you're supposed to talk about the women. And I get it. And the thing that I always said is these women aren't hitting themselves in the head. So if we're trying to get to a point of TBI and violence prevention, we have to talk about the other side. So I mentioned them a little bit before. And I would ask the women, I would say, do you know if he has a TBI, if he had been hit in the head? And if they knew their abusers, they all said yes. Oh yes, he, when he was three, he almost died from child abuse. He got hit in the head so hard. Or he's a boxer, or he's in a gang, and he's been beaten up a lot. 
So it kind of gets you thinking like where from a prevention level can we start talking to people who get TBIs and maybe talk about some of that emotional regulation. And like I said, very dangerous men. I mean, these were like, I actually Googled, I forget, one of the biker gangs that the women mentioned and I was totally freaked out. Um, and then this is again the woman at the Huffington Post, Melissa Jelton. I went to school in Charlottesville. I was very affected by the August 12th events. And the man who was driving the car had been accused of domestic violence multiple times. And once I thought about this, I started paying more attention. A lot of the mass shooters have a history of domestic violence. The guy who shot the congressional people playing baseball, do you remember that? He had been convicted of domestic violence. And so it's kind of like this little microcosm that starts amplifying out. So if we're thinking on a bigger population level, what can we do for abusers at this point before they get out to the point where they're driving cars into people or shooting your congressional people playing baseball? So this concept of prioritizing safety, this is what I heard women say. I can't get treatment for TBI and domestic violence at the same time. So what am I supposed to do? They make a choice and then they live with the so for the women who went to the shelters, they would go to the shelters, they had lived this horrible thing, this was in Baltimore, so they could get a cab, a cab comes and picks them up, with a social worker and maybe a CPS person, depending on the time of day, they take them to the shelter, they get checked in, and then the shelter worker's like, you, you really need to go to the hospital. And she was like, I couldn't, like, I could not go, what am I gonna do with my kids? I just have spent four hours to get here, I'm not taking another step. So then the question is, how can we bridge that gap? And these choices that they make, they're influenced by these multiple dimensions of fear. So the shelter might not be the best place. In Baltimore, the joke is you can ask the cab driver to take you to the house of Ruth because everyone knows where it is. And so, you know, I'm afraid to go to the shelter, but I'm even more afraid to go to the hospital because in the hospital, somebody's cousins can be working there. Or what if they take his side? Or what am I going to do with my kids? So it's trying to navigate this based from a fear response which led to this quote, I survived for this. And this is why I titled my talk, Rethinking Survivorship. Because I would hear these women tell awful stories, talk about the terrible side effects that they're living with. And they're like, but now, like, now what? Nobody's thinking about this. No one's talking to me about this. Like one of the women in the Canadian video said, I never even thought that I had a traumatic brain injury. And so we are, all kind of tasked with thinking about this more, talking about this more, raising this up in awareness so we can really start to think about what are we gonna do? Because unfortunately, I don't have the answers. But there are some good implications for nursing. So as we all take care of people across the lifespan, we can start thinking about the ways that TBIs can repeat themselves in communities. So one of the things that I talk about that I'm not supposed to talk about as much as it's not directly related to my research is what's happening with all these girls who are getting concussions from soccer. So if they're getting multiple concussions, what's happening to their brains? Maybe their brains are fine. Maybe there's something protective about the nature of being part of a team and playing soccer and being together and knowing that it's going to stop that is more protective for recovery versus this awful violence thing. I don't know. So when we're doing screening, if in our clinical practice we're in a position to be screening, just take it another step. Ask for, ask for about lifetime history of TBI. Have you hit your head before? Did you ever fall down when you were little? 
And a lot of times people will be like, oh, I really had a bad bike accident. Or some of the women I talked to had actually been through intensive TBI rehab, followed by outpatient rehab, followed by like PT and OT for years, and they still had TBI symptoms. And this goes back to that fear of medical treatment. So right as nurses, we know how to talk about health promotion. We know how to say, you know what, it's really scary now, but taking that STD test is gonna help you out in the future. And TBI is changing, becoming a chronic condition, right? People don't die in the way that they used to after serious TBI. So we kind of need to up our game a little bit and think about how we're gonna help people manage chronic conditions. And I would ask women during my interviews, what suggestions do you have for me? What do you want people like me to know who work with people like you? They said very easy things. Things like dim the lights. The lights are too bright. In women's shelters especially, a lot of times the lights are on. In Baltimore, the lights are on 24-7. Promote a quiet environment. And these are some principles from trauma-informed care, right? Things calm, low stimulation. One woman actually said, ask simple questions after I had asked like a five-part question. I was like, oh, whoops, sorry. But keep your questions simple. Ask one piece at a time, allow ample time for a response, and then move on. This one was really, really, really big. This is what almost every woman said. Act with compassion and authenticity. So relate to another person as a human being. And I think as nurses in general, we do this really, really well. Um, and so we just always need to remember, they would say, this uh, one woman was describing a doctor and she was like, he was just so annoyed that he was taking care of me. Like, this is his job. He should have picked a different job if he didn't like people. Um, and then other women were like, this doctor was really great. He told me to call him by his first name. He was very compassionate. He didn't blame me at all. And so I heard the whole spectrum, but always it was act with compassion and authenticity. And they just wanted people to know that it was a thing. One woman was very adamant that every woman coming into the shelter should have a cat scan. Everybody needed a cat scan. And I didn't ask her, it was my very first interview, so I didn't say, where did you get that information? Why do you think that the cat scan is a magical answer? But she was like, everyone coming in should just get a cat scan. I was like, okay. Um, and then also ask about history of head injuries. So this slide is something that is really interesting about presenting the work that I do. Many behaviors that may be viewed as challenging or problematic makes sense when you think about it from the lens of having a TBI. So I actually presented some of my results at the same shelter where I had been recruiting people in Baltimore. And the legal team was there. And the legal team was very interested in what I had to say because they wanted to make these women look more credible on the stand because some women would have seizures on the stand. Some women couldn't construct a logical thought on the stand. Some women have problems with memory and forgetting. And these can be, I mean, I would have problems if I was on the stand with things like memory and sequencing. But if you think about it in the lens of having a traumatic brain injury, it starts to make a little bit more sense. Or the women who don't always show up to their appointments on time or just forget, like, who do you work with that you think, oh. And I've had this happen. I'll present at a conference, and then a few sessions later, someone will come running up and be like, You'll never guess. This is my office mate, so I felt like it was okay to touch her. <laughs> You'll never guess. I had this patient 20 years ago, and I always think about her, and I bet she had a TBI. And so this is, this is kind of cool to kind of spread it and help everyone start thinking about it. So back to the screening question, right? To screen or not to screen. I will tell you that the nursing violence research community, both in the U.S. and around the world, is very divided on whether or not you should screen. And it has to do with what is your follow-up. 
So there are specific nursing organizations that say everyone should be screened. There's no evidence that screening people causes harm. But it's tricky when you get a positive screen for anything and then you're like, I don't know what to do. So this gets back to the traumatic brain injury land. There's no validated screener. There's no right way that we know how to screen for these things. Um, I do have an example that should pop up on the next slide. I always try to find different screeners and throw them in different presentations and then kind of say, well, let's look at this one. So this one's from Alabama. But whether or not we're screening, we need to be prepared to address some of these symptoms of TBI. Um, so this is the Alabama brief screening for possible brain injury. And really, it just the top part of it just asks questions. Have you ever hit your head? Um, have you been told you had a concussion? Have you been hospitalized? Have you been strangled? Did you lose consciousness? And then if any of those are yes, then you move on to part two, and it's about symptoms. Do you experience any of these symptoms? Difficulty reading, writing, or doing calculations. Concentrating, problem solving. So this one is actually pretty good, but I'm still looking for the correct response to what you do with a positive screen in the upper valley. I've been here for six months. I'm trying to figure out when I give these presentations, I, I, I still don't know what you do if you get a positive screen. So if you have suggestions, let's talk later. The other piece that I talk about when I talk about screening is this alternative to expecting a positive screen. So, right, we've all had those patients, and you know that she's experiencing violence, but she's not ready to disclose. So part of it is just checking ourselves and really recognizing that if there's a positive screen, it sets this whole process into place. And maybe she's ready for that process, and maybe she's not. So from more of a research and response world, we really need to think about how we can start to decrease the burden of a positive response. And I saw this quote and I was like, yes, critical that interventions for domestic violence promote agency and capacity for action rather than adding to the workload of an already stressed and vulnerable woman. So if you think about it, who would get screened for diabetes if it meant introducing the risk of losing your children, right? What do, we, what do we know from the chronic disease management that we can kind of put into place so we don't have to reinvent the wheel? So now that you've heard the spiel, let's talk about missed opportunities to screen and intervene for TBI. Anybody, this can be clinically, not clinically. I come up with harebrained ideas like put nurses on school buses, um, have them check out students, have them at parent-teacher conference nights. Like, yeah, I just want to say one thing about screening. I think as nurses or as healthcare providers, when we screen, the goal is to screen, and it is not to get somebody to say, yes, this is happening. It's, it's to screen, and then that person will respond in the way that seems best to them at that time, but at least they know um, that this is a safe place to come should they at any point in the future mm -hmm. decide to disclose. Mm -hmm. Can we build some of that language into the screening tools that we use? Um, so I would yeah. specifically say pediatrics. <clears throat> you talk a lot about you know adolescents um, experiencing uh, concussions, you know, etc. And in pediatrics, we don't necessarily do a lot um, mm -hmm. regarding the screening for DV in our, in our community. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's possibly a missed opportunity. Um, and I also just want to piggyback on, on what you just said um, related to the individual 
addressing a positive screen, I mean, medicine has shown that there are algorithms that kind of help. Um, so maybe specifically for DV and thinking about it um, in terms of a chronic disease, mm -hmm. algorithms help with that. I mean, we need to come up with an algorithm for a positive screen. The yeah, postdoc project, yeah. <laughs> She's a fellow postdoc. We share an office, so we brainstorm all kinds of things. But yeah, that's true. I don't. I know there are some things that use shared decision making, um, which brings me to my next slide. So take action. Um, thinking about TBI, working with women experiencing violence, raise awareness, understand that it's all around us. Do things like increase surveillance, which we can do through screening. We can also write it in our nursing documentation notes because, believe it or not, there are ways to comb through Epic to look for free text. Um, understand history of prior head injuries when doing things like patient admissions, if violence is suspected. And then these are the resources. So the danger assessment, who in here has heard of the danger assessment? A few people. So it's great, it's online, it's a tool, it's risk of homicide, basically. So it's just a bunch of questions. And like I was saying, these abusers were very dangerous. And so I actually think that anyone who screens positive for head injury should probably take a danger assessment. Um, the My Plan app is this new shared decision-making online app that's rolling out. You can all check it out. You can put it on your phone. You can fill it out for yourself. You can fill it out for someone else. It's being rolled out all over the world. It's like the new hot nursing violence research thing. It's been in development for 10 years. They're making a teen version for dating violence. Um, memory enhancing apps. A lot of people with problems with memory use little reminders, interactive calendars, things like guided relaxation, yoga nidra. And interestingly enough, square breathing, where you breathe in for four, hold it for four, out for four, hold for four. That simple process has been proven to just help everyone decrease stress and anxiety. So it doesn't have to be fancy. Four, 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 four. Um, and then I always end by saying everyone deserves to live a happy and safe life without violence. And I do have in these slides if anyone wants them a bunch of references. And then I will turn it over to Abby. Thank you. Should we do? It's uh, up, however, what it, a couple questions now. Sure. For Amanda, and then Abby will talk about resources. Does that seem like a good plan? Anyone have questions for Amanda? I do. Hi. I was intrigued by your comment about sort of uh, harebrained ideas, and um, I wonder if there's any um, value and makes it safer to do screening for brain injury not related to domestic violence. Mm -hmm. In other words, I've been very impressed in the um, child, children's health community mm -hmm. that now there are these protocols in every school for when your kid's playing a sport and gets bumped on the head and how they give them a break from class and get all, you know, they get all these accommodations and then they get followed up. And it almost seems like is there a way to draft off of the nation's increasing scrutiny on head injury concussion to sort of bootstrapping into this is something we screen everything, everybody for and sort of let it evolve through that path, then putting people through the pressure of being screened for violence in the home at the same time you're looking for head injury? Just curious. 
Yeah, I mean, that's how I recruited people for my dissertation. I just said, have you passed out from being hit in the head? I didn't say anything about violence. And then they would call, and I would say, can you share your experiences? They would say, you know, whatever. The first one was, uh, no one disclosed the violence one first. Everyone had something else that they told me. And then I would say, I'm sorry that that happened to you. Um, have you ever been hit by someone? And then if they said no, they were out of the study, and I talked to them and followed up and said yes, then I kind of went down that path. So that's kind of how I snuck in with that, and I think it's the same It's the same concept of, well, if our system is not prepared to respond to violence, how can we respond to the health outcomes? So screening for TBI is one. Yeah. Great question. Anybody else? Wait, what's the My Plan app? What does that entail? Oh, um, so you, I've only done it once just to look at it, but basically the research behind it is it's shared decision making. So it asks questions like, how safe are you? How, what are your number of partners? But it's just like an interactive app on your phone. So you can say, I'm going to fill this out for myself and answer these questions or for someone else. And then it kind of helps you decide what you should do. Um, there's a specific one, Janet, you might know. There's one for UNH too, right? That's specific. Yeah, one for... Uh, use safe. Yeah, use safe NH or something like that. Um, there's, I think, two colleges in New Hampshire that aren't a part of it. Yeah. Um, Dartmouth being one of them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good to know. But yeah, if you just Google My Plan app, you can download it in your app store and then check it out. Or you can fill it out online and it has like a safe escape button. Well, I'm just thinking it'd be nice to use it as a reference for patients mm-hmm. in general. I had no idea that it was anything like that. Cool. Yeah, if we have time, um, once Abby's done, I can pull it up on the internet and we can look at it. But yeah, my plan app. Anybody else? So I just yeah. one quick question. So I just want to ask from like a perspective of like intersectionality and looking at um, your sample population. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like the women you are finding, mm-hmm. and from the perspective of a provider mm-hmm. of our expectations, you know, regarding. Um, who we're discussing things with, what our suspicions are um, regarding our patients that we're screening, what were you kind of finding um, amongst your population, and how should we really be thinking of, you know, um, people who are um, survivors of UV in terms of populations? What do you mean by this question? Um, So specifically, like, were there women that you were finding of lower socioeconomic status, like, or were you really finding women across the board that were able to say, this is happening to me? Most of the women from the original study, because it was for low-income women who are already receiving federally funded health visiting programs, so that bracket was already low-income women. Um, and in the women that I talked to, only one self-identified as like medium to high income, and everyone else was underemployed. And one woman was from a homeless shelter, and three people were from um, a domestic violence shelter. So it really was kind of what you think of as low-income women. There was there wasn't a whole spectrum, and none of them were like they had ongoing relationships with their therapists, which makes sense because they were willing to talk to a stranger over the phone about some of this violence stuff. So it wasn't the first time they were talking about it, but none of them really mentioned ongoing relationships with a provider. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. And I mean, and then also from your research in terms of like thinking about it, like that's representative of the statistics, meaning like mm-hmm. um, women are typically from like 
So that's an interesting thing. I was just talking with Kyla about it this morning, is that it's really hard to do research on middle to upper class women, um, specifically around violence. There's just not a lot out there for lots of different reasons. Um, I think it would be interesting to kind of research the yoga community, because in my experience attending yoga conferences or retreats, there are a lot of women who actually disclose violence in a yoga space, which is interesting, because it's a safe space. Kyla and I were talking about it. It's a safe space to talk about emotions, and really kind of feel very open. Um, but I haven't seen any of that research. Violence research is pretty much on women, unfortunately. India. Can I actually ask for your, so I run a, for people that don't know me, I work for the Living Brain Foundation, and we offer a yoga program for people affected by traumatic brain injury. And because the yoga community typically serves women, I'm just staggered by the one in eight statistic, which is, so much higher than I thought the prevalence was. So there are absolutely women that are reporting that the reason they got their TBI was from assaults. And we don't currently have any training content for our yoga teachers for how to support if it comes out during the group discussion part about women's experience. So I'm just wondering if you have any suggestions or guidance for we'll how talk to about, get their training. We'll talk about this in our meeting tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. And I think if you, yeah. what Abby's going to present. That's a good segue. Yeah. yeah. I happen to be a trauma center, trauma-sensitive um, yoga instructor, and so one of the things that we know about yoga in particular is that um, it's um, for people with complex trauma, it is very difficult to participate in yoga. And so, um, so for PTSD, simple trauma, it would be one thing, but so, yeah, to add a little complexity to yeah. that possibility. But anyway, um, so um, what we know about victims who are accessing um, healthcare is that um, ideally they're being identified and then um, we can be called and come in to help. So there's an organization likewise in every community in the United States, and we are here very specifically to provide um, advocacy and support for survivors as a complement to the work that you're doing. So um, we know that you don't have the time and that you have to be going and doing other things and that really addressing the violence itself is not your primary job, but it is ours. So um, please, please call. Um, so, can I, so yes. they can call WISE or a WISE-like organization 24-7, anytime, at no charge, and you can come and help support whatever the situation is that has presented itself. Yeah, within a healthcare facility, absolutely. We don't go to people's houses. Um, we go to healthcare facilities and law enforcement um, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Um, and um, there are many providers here who have concerns about particular patients. And um, when that patient is coming, the next time they'll let us know. And so we're actually there before the patient arrives. And um, there's no HIPAA violation in that because the providers don't provide us any information about the patient. They just have us waiting. And then we can meet with the person. And um, Janet's here, and she can talk a lot more about kind of what the protocols are, in particular in the ED. But in addition, when people in you know Dartmouth Hitchcock, the ED um, screening 
is really great and we're responding all the time um, in the same sort of way. So they get screened, we just, we get a call and we just come and then the provider is able to say there's someone here from Wines or, you know, all of their services are being confidential. You know, are you willing to have a little chat with them? And one of the things that we find is that there are people who um, have repeatedly seen other providers, but that connection hasn't been made. And often victims of intimate partner violence, domestic violence, um, ha have lots of fears about meeting with advocates because they think that their, par their power is going to be taken away from them. <coughs> or that we're gonna start making decisions for them or something. But what we do, everything that we do is patient-centered, is empowerment-based. So it's always um, completely based on what makes sense for that person, recognizing that they are the experts in their own lives. We are here for support and for advocacy to help navigate systems, but not to take power away. Our main goal is to always be given power back. So we have 24-hour um, access to shelter, hospital, police, um, you know, a crisis line, and it's called a crisis line, but anyone can call anytime with anything to do with gender-based violence, so domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, sex trafficking. It can be providers who are calling, support people, um, someone who just saw something on the street. It doesn't matter. <coughs> we are happy to talk to people anytime. Um, we do safety planning, so if you call us and we come, one of the first things that we're going to be doing with your patients is um, safety planning with them. We offer ongoing support, one-on-one -on -one, um, support groups, and are also happy to be working with people who are doing support themselves. So if that person doesn't want to talk to us, then we're happy to be talking to you. And part of what we're always trying to do is just build capacity in communities so that we are all doing a better job at responding. Um, so we are covered by confidentiality, just like all of you are, and so um, we never mean to have that get in the way of providing um, partnerships and working together <coughs> to provide support, but there are times sometimes people call and they're like, what happened to you know, Mary? It's like, I can't tell you, or more likely we'll say, I can't confirm or deny that um, we know Mary. Um, <coughs> Um, and what we also know is that the services at crisis centers work. It reduces the violence in people's lives um, and really helps people kind of live violence-free lives into the future. Yes, so at WISE we work with about 1,300 people a year. Um, and by the way, our, most of the shelters, I think all of the shelters that I know of in the Northeast are not at all like Baltimore, where, so they're usually in houses, it's a much friendlier kind of situation, no big glaring lights, and um, yeah, I think our, we're just able to have um, spaces that might be a little bit more trauma-informed than in big urban centers where it's just the numbers are completely Questions for Abby about services, resources. Oh, also there's a bunch of stuff on the back table. Some of it's kind of fun swag, so. So if you really don't know what to do or how to address a situation, call WISE. And, and if they can't help you, they'll, they'll have a resource that can. Um, most of the time they can help. And remember, you don't need a doctor's order to call. Their services are free. 
Almost always, always, always. always. Yeah. Um, so they, you know, if you don't know what to do, call wise. Or Janet, do you have anything to say? I mean, um, so we do have a forensic nursing program here at the yeah. hospital. Um, one of the patient populations we see are uh, patients who experience domestic violence, um, and so we do have nurses that we can deploy to any unit in the hospital or clinic, including the clinic. Um, and we can go and offer our services in terms of would you like us to document anything for you? Should this, you know, should you decide to report to law enforcement today or someday in the future? Um, I'm not going to make reports without their permission unless it is one of our mandatory reporting requirements. Um, and that way it's documented somewhere. Um, if they want photography of any wounds, we can do that. It's completely up to them. Um, we're not going to do anything against their will. Um, so, and we're available through the emergency room and they'll just deploy us to wherever we need to go. Great, thank you. No, we're over time. Thank you all so much for coming. Much appreciated.